very much, Mike and Jessica. A wonderful job. I must say, I thought, what will they use from Song of Songs to dance to? And you've done an incredible job. I love the running out, which is the end of Song of Songs we're going to see today. Let's pray uh, as we finish this series today. Father, we thank you for what we discover in this book, this incredible beauty, uh, wonder, intimacy, love, sexuality, all being addressed so helpfully and positively. And so, Father, as we finish the series today, I pray, instruct us in our hearts and our minds about the power of love and about being content, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you've got your Bibles there, if you can keep Song of Songs open from the Bible reading. I know it was a little bit ago. Last week, if you weren't here, uh, you missed the joy of sex. And uh, I must say, uh, we had some very interesting conversations after church. Uh, I haven't quite seen dinner the same way uh, at five o'clock. All these couples sitting together having dinner and saying, well, we've got to go home and have sex tonight. And if you missed it, well, it's probably worth listening to. Uh, There's a very positive message on sex for couples who are married together uh, to take hold of as we think about what it means to be married. I want to talk today about the power of intimacy. And if what I said last week was um, wait till you're married and then enjoy when you are, what I want to say this week is be content in the place you're at whether you're married or single because that's the best way to find peace and life in your relationships. So last week if you're single, wait. If you're married, enjoy. Talking about the uh, joy of sex. Today it's about finding contentment in the relationships that you're in. And I want us to work a little bit harder today from Song of Songs. We're going to finish the whole series up with this message. And what I want to do is reflect on Solomon and his role in the book along with the last chapter. And if you're familiar with Solomon, you'll know that Solomon was one who was uh, the richest person in the world at his time, perhaps in history. He also had uh, incredible wisdom. A number of books in Scripture are written by Solomon. You've got the Song of Songs, you've got Ecclesiastes... And a fair chunk of Proverbs comes from his pen. So he is a very wise man. He also is known as the one who had many women. And it's worth reflecting on that as we reflect on the Song of Songs because there's a very subtle but powerful message that comes through this book that's easy to miss. And it's interesting, the book is not written about Solomon, I don't think. And Mike, as he began the series, pointed that out to us. We've seen it's about a young maiden. Um, Solomon, we're introduced at the beginning of the book as Solomon, Song of Songs. Now, Solomon wrote many songs, uh, and some of them are actually in the Psalms. Psalm 72, Psalm 127 are songs that Solomon wrote. But this one is described as the Song of Songs. In other words, this is his greatest hit. And I want to put to you that I think this song is written at the end of his life, not the beginning. There is incredible wisdom that comes with this song that I think is because of the way Solomon has stepped back at the end of his life and reflected on the questions of marriage and sex and intimacy and love. And he's got some very interesting and I want to say incredibly uh, humble things that he wants to say, not just to us but to anyone who will pick this book up. When I was 25, I was married. 
And when you're young, you think you know everything. And uh, you discover as you get along in marriage that actually you don't know everything and there's lots of things you need to learn uh, and there's lots of trials along the way. Kath and I will be married 24 years come the 20th of May in about three or four weeks' time and we're looking forward to that. And there's no doubt 24 years on, uh, there's wisdom that you gain along the journey and you can't gain it until you've actually been through it. And I think that's what you see today here with Solomon. You see, he appears on four occasions. This is the first time he's saying, this is my song. Um, the second time is at the beginning when the maiden is introduced. And we saw this in week one. Dark am I, yet lovely, O daughters of Jerusalem, like the tents of Kedah, like the tent curtains of Solomon. And we saw that this girl, this maiden, this lover, um, she is one who does not see herself, if I can say, as being a ten. When she says she is dark, she's not saying that in a positive way. Beauty was seen to have pale skin and you weren't someone who worked out in the fields. But yet, she says, I am lovely. And so there's a sense of which uh, she has got some self, sense of self-esteem in terms of her beauty, yet she realises that she's not like the maidens from the uh, throne of Solomon. Her daughters of Jerusalem, like the tents of Kedar, like the tent curtains of Solomon. And it's kind of a, a, an innocuous reference in one level to Solomon's temple. She's saying, yes, uh, I'm dark like the tents of Kedar. In other words, that's uh, not a positive thing. Uh, but like the tents of the curtain uh, from the temple, which were beautiful, yes, there is a beauty about me. And Solomon appears, and it's interesting, whenever Solomon appears, the maiden appears. You turn to chapter 3 and you have this incredible poem. And we missed off this deliberately last week. And if you've got your Bibles there, have a look at chapter 3. Um, there's 11 verses. There are two poems there in chapter 3. The first one is the poem about this young maiden. The second is the poem about Solomon. And you might ask the question, are they connected in any way? Well, yes, I think they are connected and they're meant to be read together. Now, when you read through this poem, the first one, all night long on my bed, I looked for the one my heart loves. I looked for him but did not find him. We begin with this young maiden who is searching for her lover, her husband. The watchman found me as they made their rounds in the city. Have you seen the one my heart loves? Scarcely had I passed him when I found the one my heart loves. I held him and would not let him go till I brought him to my mother's house. And so they're united. And daughters of Jerusalem, I charge you by the gazelles and by the does of the field, do not arouse or awaken love until it so desires. And then you move on to this second poem, which is about Solomon. You think, well, what's that doing there? Look. It's uh, who's coming up from the desert like a column of smoke, perfumed with myrrh and incense, made from the spices of the merchant. Look, it's Solomon's carriage and he's escorted by 60 warriors, the noblest of Israel, all of them wearing the sword, all experienced in battle, each with his sword at his side, prepared for the terrors of the night. King Solomon made for himself the carriage. He made it of wood from Lebanon, its posts he made of silver and its base of gold. Its seat was upholstered with purple, its interior lovingly inlaid by the daughters of Jerusalem. Come out, you daughters of Zion, and look at King Solomon wearing the crown, the crown with which his mother crowned him on the day of his wedding, the day his heart rejoiced. Now, it's interesting to put these two poems together. Um, there are some similarities which tell you that they're to be read in conjunction with each other. The mother of the maiden, the mother of Solomon, they're both there. Interesting. Secondly, the daughters of Jerusalem, which are the daughters of Zion, are both there at the end. 
and there's a reflection given after the first poem and a reflection given after the second poem, which really just ties these poems together. But there's some stark differences, aren't there? You see, this maiden is, if I can say, a country girl with her lover. Uh, there is a simplicity about her life and her love. Uh, there is no opulence or pomp or ceremony and definitely not the money that you see with Solomon. Solomon's carriages are so grand you can almost smell them before that you can see them. That's the picture that has been given by this poem. Perfumed with myrrh and incense, made from all the spices of the merchant. Who's coming up from the desert? Well, in contrast to, if I can say, the simplicity of the maiden, you have this, if I can say, exquisitely rich and ornate and powerful figure who arrives, King Solomon. And you see, the maiden, well, she has no one to protect her. The watchman found her at night as she searched for her husband. But Solomon, well, he's actually got 60 personal bodyguards. Now, we're talking about the elite of the elite. They're like the SAS. And it's worth saying David had mighty men who worked with him. David had far more enemies than Solomon had. Do you know how many mighty men David had? He only had 30. Solomon had 60. There's this great contrast of protection because you see, this is a person who has great power, great wealth, great status, a great sense of self-importance. And have a look at what verse 11 says. Come out, you daughters of Zion, and look. Take note. Take note of what you see about this one who has come up from the desert. Now just remember those words as you read through Song of Songs because it's interesting, Solomon appears for a third time and this time again someone is coming up from the desert. And that's our first, fourth reference, the reading we had today which we're going to look at. And when you hear the phrase coming up from the desert, um, what images come to mind for us? in terms of coming up from the desert. I would say it's probably not a familiar image for us. Um, how many of us have been out to the desert in Australia? A few people? We live by the sea, basically, in Australia. We don't live by the desert. We know we have desert. We see it on the TV. Uh, but if you were someone from Jerusalem, the desert was a very powerful image and a very powerful memory. What was the desert for Israel? Was it not where the people of God wandered for 40 years? Was it not connected with one of the most profound experiences that, if I can say, defined Israel, the Exodus? And when you hear the words, someone coming up from the desert, where are they coming to? Well, in the Exodus, where were they headed? The promised land. And so you have in this poem King Solomon coming up from the desert seeking to enter the promised land. And we start the reading in chapter 8, verse 5. Well, who is this coming up from the desert? 
leaning on the lover. Take note. Look. What do we find when we examine chapter 8? There are three significant themes that finish this song. Um, so I can come back. The first is love. The second is virginity. And the third is contentment. Let's have a look at each of these themes. The first one, which is love, faithful love. Who is this coming up from the desert, leaning on her lover? Under the apple tree I roused you. There your mother conceived you. There she who was in labour gave you birth. Place me like a seal over your heart, like a seal on your arm, for love is as strong as death. It's jealousy unyielding as the grave. It burns like a blazing fire, like a mighty flame. Many waters cannot quench love. Rivers cannot wash it away. If one were to give all the wealth of his house for love, it would be unformed. Let's just have a look at each of these images. The first is this, uh, if I can put it this way, love is leaning on your lover's chest. Very concise words in the poem an incredibly powerful image who is this coming up from the desert leaning on her lover that's worth saying um, the eroticism of song of songs has finished now if you go back to chapter seven you, if you can say playfully you see the climax sexually of the sex making the love making in chapter 7, how beautiful you are, how pleasing. Oh, love with your delights, your stature is like that of the palm and your breasts like clusters of fruit. I said I will climb the palm tree, I will take hold of its fruit. May your breasts be like the clusters of the vine, the fragrance of your breath like apples and your mouth like the best wine. And then the woman responds, may the wine go straight to my lover, gently flowing over lips and teeth. I belong to my lover and his desire is for me. And you see here the climax, if I can say, of the sexual interplay between the husband and wife. But that's not the climax of the song. That's not the end of the story. Last week I said sex is not ultimate. Sex is not ultimate. God is ultimate. And sex has purpose along with the beauty and pleasure that it brings a married couple. And it is beautiful and it is pleasurable, but it's purposeful as well. It is designed to help a couple become one flesh. And you see the reality of this as the Song of Song finishes. The sexual climax is over. But what you're left with is this profound picture, if I can say, of content love. The wife is leaning on the lover's chest. They are coming up from the desert. They are heading to the promised land. And you see this imagery that's being portrayed here in the song. You see, the goal of sexual encounter in marriage is to bring a husband and wife together. And here she is leaning on his chest. There is closeness and security. There is mutual submission. She trusts him and he cares for her and he serves her. Are they young or are they old? It doesn't matter. 
What we do know is that they've discovered closeness and security of relationship. And it's beautiful. I spoke to one of our elderly members who comes at 8 o'clock just a couple of days ago. I saw them, uh, he and his wife, walking back after the Anzac Day service here. And uh, he was reflecting on Mike's sermon, how much he enjoyed it the other week. And I said, oh, you missed hearing me speak on sex. And he looked me in the eyes and said, Bruce, we don't have sex anymore, we just make love. And it it was a beautiful phrase. I didn't want to explore what he meant by that. (laughs) But there was this sense of which whether we have sex or not is irrelevant. Uh, We make love together. We are in love. And I don't know what it's like to be 80 and to think about those thoughts. The mind boggles, I'll leave it there. But what you saw was a couple who, if I can say, have grown together and become one. And there was this incredible sense of contentment and tenderness, if I can say, and deep joy. And they just walked off hand in hand. Now he's turning 80 this year. It was a beautiful picture. Love in Song of Solomon is leaning on your lover's chest. That sense of oneness and contentment. Secondly, love is wearing your wedding ring always. Now, I wear my wedding ring most of the time, it's worth saying. Um, Mine, unlike some guys, um, some guys physically cannot take them off after a few years of marriage. Uh, Married life is good for them, if I can put it that way. Um, mine's always been a bit loose. I take it off because it literally will fall off if I go in the surf. Um, and I've had it fall off in the pool at Sydney Uni when we were only a couple of years married and I heard it go clink and uh, sound is amplified in the water and we're all doing laps. And I have to swim up and come back and then dive down while everyone's doing laps and come up and kind of, it's all right. <laughs> and so I take it off. But that's the only reason I take it off is when I go in the water. Um, there's something profound about this symbol. It speaks of permanence and it speaks of a promise of faithfulness. And you see, that's what you come to at the climax. Under the apple tree I roused you. There your mother conceived you. There she who was in labour gave you birth. Place me like a seal over your heart, like a seal on your arm. For love is as strong as death. Its jealousy unyielding is the grave. It burns like blazing fire, like a mighty flame. Many waters cannot quench love. Rivers cannot wash it away. If one were to give all the wealth of his house for love, it would be utterly scorned. And there's some incredibly powerful images here. You see the permanence of married love. Place me like a seal on your heart and on your arm. Now, if you want a proof text for getting a tattoo of your wife's name, here it is, okay? Because you see, a seal in the ancient world uh, was a person's personal seal. It was a guarantee of their identity. It was literally a seal that you might put on a legal document. And what these lovers are saying is, I have sealed my name and your name on my heart. I have sealed your name on my arm. Now, there's a tattoo of Alexandra on 
the lover's arm. Now, I know we've actually got one guy here who showed me with great delight after I married them that he has his wife's name tattooed on his chest. It was very impressive. I wasn't going to do it, Kath. I'm sorry. But what he was saying was, um, there is a private love that I have for my wife and there is a public seal and sign of it. And that's the image that you've got here. Place me like a seal over your heart, like a seal on your arm. Privately, you know I am yours forever. And publicly, I will continue to declare my love and faithfulness. And that's why when I marry people, um, I always say to them in preparation, you can't just get the prayer book, find the wedding service, duck up to North Head in a moment of passion and recite it to each other under God and think that you're married. You're not. You see, to be married, you enter into a covenant. And every covenant has witnesses. You see it in legal covenants. There will always be a witness to the signatory. And when people get married, I know you invite your friends and family because it's a great joyous occasion, but there's a very particular function that friends and family are performing on that day. They are witnessing publicly a declaration of faithful love. This love is permanent. This love is powerful. Note the image of death. It can't overcome love. Love is as strong as death. It's jealousy as unyielding as the grave. And again, you see here, if I can say, the powerful permanence of biblical married love. Whatever happens, you continue to affirm that you will love your partner. I think the toughest time in our marriage was when my wife went through postnatal depression. And I know uh, many of you are aware of that. She spoke on that last year on the whole topic of depression. And I think one of her great fears was, uh, would I just disappear? Would I stop loving her? And anyone who's been married to someone who is suffering with depression will know the great reality, it is difficult. Uh, it is not easy uh, when your partner is not well for all sorts of reasons. There's a great sadness about what they're going through. Uh, but there's also a sense that it is a one-sided relationship to some extent as you just seek to serve. And I remember thinking, uh, I have given my word. I will love my wife. Now, we're going to have a great time. We're going away for a couple of days for our anniversary and we are more deeply in love than ever. And I love her. But you see, it comes and that contentment comes as your love is put to the test. Love is permanent. Love is powerful. Love is passionate. I love the next imagery. It burns like a blazing fire, like a mighty flame. Uh, you see, this is biblical love. There is emotion involved. You give yourself to someone. Now, let me say, it's not always like that, but um, that is, if I can say, what you should be praying for, that you, if I can say, feel a sense of joy and love for your spouse. A joy and a love that not even a fire can put out. It burns like a blazing fire, like a mighty flame, sorry, that not even water can quench. 
Many waters can quench love. Rivers cannot wash it away. He says the image of a fire that they're spraying with water, it's being flooded, but it cannot be put out because such is the passion of the love. And then lastly, you see this great image, it is priceless. If one were to give all the wealth of his house for love, it would be utterly scorned. I couldn't help but think of the um, great song by the Beatles. I don't care too much for money. Money can't buy me love, can't buy me love. You want to sing with me? Anyway. (laughs) You know what's profound? Who's writing this? Let's get back to the start of the sermon. Who's writing this? Money can't buy me love. It wasn't the Beatles. It wasn't George or Ringo. It was Solomon, the richest man in the world. Because it makes you ask the question, did he ever really find love? There's a profound sadness, I think, behind this song that we're going to come to. Because Solomon, who's got it all, and he said to the young daughters of Jerusalem, look at this Solomon who comes in all his splendor and pomp and power and money. Look at him. It didn't buy him love. Love is priceless. If you're married, your spouse is a gift from God. They are priceless. They are beautiful. Never forget that. And never look elsewhere thinking the grass is greener because that's precisely what Solomon did and he kept adding and adding and adding to his harem and at the end of his life he looks at this couple who are simple and who in the world's eyes would have just been looked over there's nothing special about them But he sees in them something profound. They have a love that is permanent and is powerful and is passionate and money can't buy that love. The next theme is virginity. If you want to hear me talk about that, I'm going to talk about it tonight at uh, our night service. It's probably more pertinent to our younger people. I do want to just read the verses, though. They're worth reflecting on. We have a young sister and her breasts are not yet grown. This is a young girl that's being reflected upon. What shall we do for our sister for the day she's spoken for? If she is a wall, we will build towers of silver on her. If she's a door, we'll enclose her with panels of cedar. Um, They're quite provocative images. Um, What Solomon is saying is, well, uh, if you've got a young girl that you know, protect her so she waits. And if she's someone of strong moral fibre who, if I can say, is protecting her virginity, she's put a wall around it, that's what the image is, well then we're going to build upon that and just encourage her in that. Uh, But if her virginity is something like a door, it's a very provocative image, uh, what are we going to do? Um, Well, what we're going to do is we're going to enclose her with panels of cedar. Uh, We're going to be boundary riders, morally and ethically and spiritually, that... 
if I can say, help this young girl maintain her virginity. I'm going to speak more about that tonight. Because I want to move to the last part, which is deep contentment. You see, we come to the conclusion. If she is a wall, we will build towers of silver on her. If she's a door, we will enclose her with panels of cedar. And then the maiden speaks. I am a wall. And my breasts are like towers. And I have become in his eyes like one bringing contentment. Just let that soak in. I am a wall. I have protected myself so that I gave myself to my husband and he alone. And my breasts are there for his enjoyment, if I can give you an Australian paraphrase. And I am like one bringing, and literally the word is, shalom, peace, contentment. Now, I want you to see, this is, I think, one of the most understated but powerful verses I've seen in Scripture. And sad verses. Solomon had a vineyard in Baal Hamon. He let actually his vineyard out to tenants. Each was to bring for its fruit a thousand of shekels of silver, but my own vineyard is mine to give. The thousand shekels are for you, O Solomon, and two hundred are for those who tend its fruit. Um, Solomon and the vineyard image is a image relating to sexual intercourse. And the word for his vineyard that describes his vineyard, the vineyard in Baal Haman, when translated literally means the vineyard who is the lord of wealth or the vineyard that who is the owner of a crowd, the vineyard who is the husband of a mob, you might say. And unlike the maiden, there's no shalom. He did not find that. He did not find contentment. Look, you daughters of Jerusalem, and see this old man who had it all. He had wealth, power, position, and he had any woman he could want. The daughters of Jerusalem know this. He could not bring shalom to his spouse. Only that maiden could, who was faithful and who was passionate and who persevered with the one God had given her. Friends, the climax of this song is the realisation that contentment in life and in marriage finds is found by being content and faithful to the one God has given you. And if you're single here today, my word for you is find your contentment in God alone and in the relationships you have with other people appropriately and be content in that and protect your virginity. And if God should bless you with a partner, praise be to God. You will not find contentment by opening the door 
to anyone who will come along by allowing the walls to be plundered. Protect that for marriage. And if you're married here today, I want you to hold hands with your wife or your husband. And I wrote these words down that I'd love you to say in some way, shape or form as I leave some quiet or perhaps as you find some quiet this afternoon. Darling, I am glad I married you. I am content. May I bring you shalom, peace and joy. And together may we look to heaven and pray that we find our strength and contentment in him as we wait together for his final kingdom to come. And if you're single, I would say find a friend and together pray for each other. May we find contentment in our friendships and in God alone. And may we protect ourselves so that we will be faithful unto him. Friends, this world shouts that sexual experience outside of marriage, that adultery, that you name it, is where the excitement and joy and peace is to be found. Hear King Solomon this day who had it all and he says to you, it's wrong. Find your joy and your contentment in God and in your spouse alone. Let me pray. Father, I thank you for the joy and the contentment and the peace and the wonder of married love. I pray that you would grant us contentment in our spouses a deep and passionate and enduring love. May we be able together with this maiden say, I am one who brings shalom. My vineyard is mine to give. I pray for those who are single that they would find contentment and joy in you and in their friends here. And may we together wait for the great consummation of the ages when the Lord Jesus returns. And in his name we pray, come Lord Jesus. Amen.